Good evening, and welcome to the 23rd uh, edition of The Political Mic. Merry Christmas Eve to you all. Um, I am so excited to have the panel I, I have this evening. Um, we're going to dive into so much tonight. Uh, so much has happened uh, in just a short period of time. Uh, this platform was live. Uh, President Trump uh, just yesterday uh, announced that he was not he was going to veto uh, the negotiate the, the bill that was the product of negotiations after several months. Um, in addition to that, we also saw that Russia's hacking uh, seemed to infiltrate the Department of Treasury, the Energy Department, which oversees 17 of our national laboratories, and the Department of Commerce. Um, so that coupled with the fact that the circle of folks on the GOP side who have been denying uh, that President-elect Biden has actually won the election of 2020 has like, increasingly got smaller and smaller. Um, so much to, to get into, um, so little time. Uh, without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and introduce this very distinguished panel of mine. Um, I'm so happy, first of all, to have uh, Miss Elena Henry uh, with us. She is currently working as a ministerial engagement officer uh, for the British government in London. Uh, she worked for the British Embassy in Washington, D.C. Um, as a visits and events officer. She was also the British Embassy's 2019 to 2020 emerging leader and chair of the minority ethnic group. Uh, she was a former intern uh, for the Global Ties Alabama. And in 2017 to 2018, she was an emerging leader for Global Ties U.S. in Washington, D.C. She obtained a bachelor's, a bachelor's of social work degree uh, from Oakwood University in Huntsville, Alabama, and a master's of social work with a focus of international human rights law, foreign policy, and social leadership from Florida State University. Um, she's also met a few members of the royal family while working at the embassy in Washington, D.C., um, and she was awarded an official proclamation by the mayor of the town of uh, Mongonia, Mongonia Park in South Florida uh, for her hard work and dedication to the town. Uh, she hopes to become an uh, ambassador, high commissioner, or permanent representative to the United Nations or achieve all three. Elena, this is the first time I've had you on the panel. It's such an honor uh, to have you on. I know it's about after midnight where you are. So Merry Christmas to you. And thank you for being a part of the political mic this evening. So next, I have another good friend of mine, Dabney Bryce, uh, who's a recent a master's in public administration graduate at the University of Delaware's Biden School of Public Policy and Administration. Previously, she she received her Bachelor's of Arts in Global Studies in Lee uh, University. She's also a very great she's also very grateful for the opportunities she's had over the years because they've all cemented her passion for public service and desire to make a difference through policy. Some of her experiences include working for the 2020 Delaware Municipal Clerks Institute, the Policy and Research Bureau at the NYC Comptroller's Office, the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation, and the office of Senator Chuck Schrumer of New York. Her policy interests are immigration, criminal justice, education, and foreign relations. Currently, she's on the job search and hoping to return to Washington, D.C. soon. Uh, a fun fact about Dabney is that she's a world traveler, and having been on She's actually been to 10 countries and she's hoping to add to her list when it's safe to do so, of course, when this pandemic subsides. So Dabney, thank you so much for being here. I'm so looking forward to the insight and knowledge you're going to share as it pertains to public policy. So next we have a returning guest, uh, Ms. Tashanika Bryant. So happy to have her back on. Uh, Ms. Bryant was born and raised in Southern California. She's a graduate of Oakland University in Huntsville, Alabama. She has a degree in English literature with a minor in political science. Uh, she's a married mother of three 
and she's the host of the podcast Just the Facts, which is a political podcast. So, Miss Bryant, thank you so much for being for being back. And um, I have Mr. Xavier Lynham, who's a native of the Bay Area, California, and also a recent graduate of Oakwood University, uh, where he studied music and political science. While at Oakwood, he served as a USM or student government senator, a resident assistant, the senior class president, and even intern for uh, Congressman Sanford D. Bishop. He plans to attend law school in the fall of 2021 and eventually serve as a change agent in the black community. Xavier, it's always good to have you, man. And so without further ado, I want to just jump into the uh, Georgia Senate runoffs that are going on. Um, recent polls show that this race is a really neck and neck race. Um, I think the latest poll had uh, Leffler at 48 um, and Warnock at 49 and Purdue at 47 with Ossoff at 46 percent. Um, additionally, civil rights groups, the NAACP, as well as Vote Forward, have reached an agreement with the Postal Service. Um, and according to this agreement, um, there will be an actual expedited process uh, to get ballots counted. Um, over two million Georgians have already uh, cast their ballots in. Uh, the Postal Service agreed to treat ballots um, still in still in processing plants within three days of the election um, as express mail, which translates to next day delivery. So what does this mean? It means that a ballot uh, traveling from a printing vendor in New York, in New York uh, to Georgia uh, would get there fast, faster than usual. And additionally, the mail service agreed to um, bypass processing plants. Uh, this is significant for a number of reasons. We've seen uh, a lot of stress on the Postal Service, and especially in this holiday season, uh, when a lot of uh, gifts are being delivered by mail because of the pandemic, uh, the, the Postal Service has experienced uh, a lot of, uh, it's, it's, it's experienced a great burden during this pandemic. And so there's a lot of caution and stress as to what the runoff would mean. You know, would it mean a reduced amount of enthusiasm because it's not it's not November, you know, folks were already fatigued then. Does this mean that uh, we're, to, we're going to see more people actually casting their ballots, being that they've reached an agreement that seems to actually expedite the process? I'm interested in getting your thoughts, panelists. I'm going to open up the floor to whoever wants to jump on this one. Wow. Um, I think that uh, with the Postal Service agreeing to um, basically do what they've always done, um, I guess that's a victory of some sorts. Um, prior to Louis DeJoy, um, the mail that was balloting was always uh, given priority. So I guess we are kind of going back to a norm in some sort of sense, which is kind of odd that we would even they would even have to um, take time to even make some type of arrangement such as this. Um, but I do think uh, given the numbers that I've been viewing pertaining to what's happening in Georgia, uh, they're shattering records. People are standing in in line. Uh, Stacey Abrams and her people, as well as, you know, all kinds of different uh, grassroots efforts are taking place and they're really mobilizing and um, getting people to to the polls. Um, I, I, I feel good definitely about the election, um, especially considering uh, Trump is kind of um, assisting in his voter suppression. Um, it's kind of having a backwards effect 
because uh, it is allowing people um, who voted in November are thinking because of all the fraudulent claims that are coming uh, that perhaps their vote is unnecessary. I believe there was a clip uh, not too long ago where a voter was going back and forth with the, I think, was it the RNC chair? I'm not too certain, but I, I believe. And uh, she was stating uh, what was the point in us voting because the uh, machines are rigged and and all of this and 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 they're trying uh, the Republicans are having a problem with trying to walk back uh, a lot of their support for Trump in not stating uh, that the claims were fraudulent um, and they're having trouble getting their voters to the polls. So if anything, this may have uh, a good effect uh, for the Democrats uh, moving moving forward. And of course, um, African-American communities, when you're looking at the metro Atlanta area, uh, counties like Henry County, uh, Clayton County, um, DeKalb County, um, all of these areas that are suburban uh, areas predominantly filled with African-American residents um, are affected the most by this um, slowdown by the mail system. So this is actually significant for these areas. Um, I've been in here um, for about, I guess, going back to July, late July. So it hasn't been a long time, but I've already gotten mail uh, from the group Fair Fight, uh, which is headed by Stacey Abrams. Um, I've received so many, even though I'm not able to vote yet in Georgia, um, you know, I've seen so much literature and, and mail promoting me to do so already. Um, I've seen the ads um, and they've been intensifying um, the messages on both sides. Um, and both sides seem to be hammering down uh, what they have already been articulating before November. So it doesn't seem like there's much of a significant change in the way they're trying to uh, address their constituents. Um, Leffler is portraying uh, Warnock as someone who is very far left, someone who cannot be trusted. Um, she has made comparisons between him and Jeremiah Wright. Um, and we know that during the 2008 campaign, uh, when Jeremiah Wright's speech was sliced up and placed into the uh, commercials, uh, the Obama campaign had to backpedal a little bit and, and, and regroup. Uh, because this looked like um, the end of the Obama campaign. And that was around the, I think the spring, no, it was around the fall of the general election. Um, now, because he um, has taken a strong stance against police brutality, um, and he's actually uh, taken a, you know, a stance against uh, foreign intervention and, and whether or not the United States is justified in certain situations, uh, it's being portrayed as if he is uh, anti-police or anti-Semitic. Um, Purdue, on the other hand, is portraying Ossoff, also as far left. And there's an ad that has Pelosi's face, Schumer in the middle, and Ossoff on the, on the right, like they're a pair. I mean, like they're a group together. Um, now, on the flip side, both, Senator, uh, both Warnock and Ossoff are arguing that Leffler and David Purdue were out to look for themselves. You know, they were out to cash in quick once they found out how dangerous and how dire the pandemic would get. Uh, and because of their negligence, you're now suffering as hard as you are. I think both messages may be effective for each of their groups. Uh, for those on the right, they're going to want to believe that these folks are just too liberal, um, and that's just going to resonate with them regardless. Uh, for those on the left, it's easy for them to believe you know, that these two folks who are in power took advantage of their positions. Um, and so this, this dynamic is interesting, and I think the big story is going to be whether or not the holiday season uh, whether or not, you know, shopping, Christmas shopping, the new year, all of that has caused people to kind of uh, fall into a state of ease. 
um, and or whether or not they have the same sense of urgency that they had uh, last month. Um, Elena, I know you're across the pond, uh, but you're still an American. I'm interested to get your thoughts on this. Yeah, so it's interesting how, of course, um, here with everything that's going on with uh, Brexit and and getting a, a finally reaching some sort of deal, uh, and then also, of course, COVID happening, that, of course, we're focusing on what's going on in the U.S., which really shows, of course, the magnitude of this issue. Uh, one thing that I do want to point out when I was just looking up articles, of course, they're saying that there's a very high turnout um, and that people are really getting out there and voting. I think it's interesting to kind of take this into perspective when it comes time to the general election versus electing uh, the Senate and the representatives, because I think people are now understanding the importance of not only voting for presidents, but also voting for uh, the Senate and, and representatives, because yes, you have the, the president that you want, but as far as getting the the bills and, and laws that he, that president wants to actually um, you know, make come forward and, and actually happen, you definitely need uh, that party to also dominate in other spaces. So I just think it's interesting that, you know, people are really, you know, being more alive to this issue that maybe in the past there wasn't as much interest uh, kind of after the general elections, things kind of died down in a way, but I think it's great to kind of see that momentum still going. Um, and hopefully, uh, everyone who's voting uh, definitely gets the house uh, that they really want, so. And thanks for bringing that up because, you know, one of the things that is evident is that uh, what what happens in the United States has a huge influence um, in terms of what goes on uh, with our allies and our adversaries. Uh, we've already seen, and I, and I believe it's connected, um, hacking, which was mentioned earlier on, uh, by the Russian, by Russia. Um, now, I know that has been said, look, these were private companies um, and also it was only three agencies. But when you look at where, the, the, you know, commerce, energy um, and treasury, you know, these are really key departments. And, and not only that, but look at the timing in which this happened. Um, that shortly after Putin announced that he, he'll acknowledge Biden as the next president, before Mitch McConnell did, which was, which was, uh, you know, very, very insightful. This happens. And so I'm thinking, you know, he knows that uh, his ally in the White House is, has but a short time and he's making haste. You know, he's doing what he has to do uh, to ensure that um, the national security of the United States is still jeopardized or he can get the most out of get the more bang for his buck before uh, time wraps up, basically. Um, but I'm, I'm glad that you brought up Brexit because this also is influential in terms of what's going on, how this election actually influences that. Um, remember the G British government had their election before COVID-19. And so it was a completely different environment this time last year. Um, and so I, you know, it's very interesting in looking at the context in which these events happen and how they relate to one another. Um, Xavier, I wanna get your thoughts, man, on what's going on because in addition to uh, the deal that's been reached. It's also uh, it's also significant that um, this deal was reached uh, in part because of the battle. You know, th this deal also means that there'll be no court uh, hearing. So this actually avoids more litigation. Um, and oftentimes, uh, when it pertains to litigation, especially with elections, um, things get get muddled. Uh, things can get a little complicated and maybe stalled. And postpone. But here we have a deal reached, which means that at the end of it, both sides have agreed. Po the Postal Service has agreed. 
the NAACP and, and, and the other civil rights group have, have agreed that this is the most effective way that they want this election to be uh, conducted. I'm interested in getting your thoughts, specifically in light of the fact that so many are still holding that, hey, this thing is rigged. Um, we can't really trust the system. Um, this election was stolen. Um, Trump has continued to hammer down on that uh, day after day that whenever he's in the public view. Um, so I'm wondering, does this process actually mitigate those th those beliefs or, or, or do anything to alleviate um, those who are somewhat concerned about whether or not there's a biased process going on in election in the election process? Absolutely. Well, first of all, Mike, thanks so much for having me on the show. Um, in my opinion, uh, this New Deal, um, I think the relevancy of it um, in regards to um, the election is uh, a lesser um, of lesser concern. The fact that the deal is coming um, is is more monumental um, for the average voter. Um, I mean, in America in general, I mean, I remember being five, six years old, talking to my parents about voting, like, oh, what's you know, what is this going on? Um, and they're like, oh, you know, whatever, like, you know, my vote really doesn't matter or, you know, all, all the things that we've heard for so many generations, um, which have been relevant generations before, um, but, you know, prior to like, you know, the 20th century. Um, but we've heard these things year in and year out. And now that is changing. Uh, I'm not sure that is really relevant to the average voter, you know, 10, 15 years down the line. Um, if the, uh, you know, the, the left and the right keep pushing their agendas, I could see how it could be relevant. But right now, I really just don't see how it is. Um, there's two main fights that, that are happening in America. The, the first fight is the relevancy of uh, elections in general. Um, and the second is who are we voting for? You know, and, and that, that is when you're looking at the left and the right, um, the right is always pushing radicalism, um, extremism and literally the the left is just like in defensive mode saying this is not what we're about um and so right now what you pretty much have is um if you've ever seen two microphones get close to each other um they keep the closer they get the more noise they make and when things are so polarizing you you can't hear what's actually supposed to be heard so right right now um, we're at a pivotal point where if we are not getting our act together, because all this is kind of foolishness, if we don't get it together, um, we'll be right back to where my grandparents were saying, oh, my vote doesn't matter, it doesn't count, and we'll be right back to where all this momentum will be in, in vain. And I'm glad you brought that up because I think at the end of the day, um, I, I think what you were conveying was that, you know, regardless of what they're saying in terms of their messages, it's really just gonna boil down to turnout at the end of the day. Um, are people gonna turn out on January the 5th? And the thing that has me worried is that after Christmas and after New Year's, there's this kind of let's get back to work. Let's just get let's get back to the regular, you know, let's get back to reality. Um, there's no holiday in the, the month of January. I guess Martin Luther King Day, you know, it's a day off. But are people going to just go back to business as usual so much so that they forget or not take as seriously the fact that this is Election Day? And I think that's going to be the key story with January the 5th. But one thing that this election influences are B Biden's uh, cabinet appointments, because remember, he can appoint, make these appointments, but at the end of the day, they need to be confirmed. And so the Senate, without a majority, a clear majority um, on either side, places this whole process in limbo. 
Um, so with the Senate majority unknown until the 5th of January, um, you know, the, the much of the chamber's business remains up in the air, potentially for days or weeks after the elections. Um, and remember, right after the 5th is the day that the, the vice president, Mike Pence, is supposed to confirm the electoral numbers. Um, so this is all very interesting. And, and, and it's one after the other. Um, Senator Richard Burr, who's actually the chairman of the uh, Senate C uh, Health Committee, uh, a committee that I had the opportunity to intern for, actually said that, um, you know, this whole uh, nomination or appointee process for Biden's team is is moot until control of the Senate is clear. Um, so remember, right now, these two Senate seats will determine who have who has the majority. The vice president breaks the tie, of course. Um, but as of now, it, it looks like the Republicans are favorites win being that is Georgia. But at the same time, the Democrats won Georgia the first time in 30 years. I'm interested to get your thoughts. If if we have another night like November 3rd and there's no clear winner um, on Election Day or there's litigation and, you know, whatever the case may be, um, that causes this process to be drawn out. Um, what do you guys see in terms of how we, you know, the Biden team moves forward? Because we're only getting closer to the 20th. Um, how does how do they move forward? And are we entering into unprecedented territory where you can actually get closer and closer to Election Day and we don't even have a full cabinet yet? Um, well, I'm sorry, go ahead. Um, well, first of all, thank you, Mike, for having me today. I'm really happy to be here. Um, and I think definitely the runoffs are affecting Biden's cabinet heavily. And you can see that now as we still don't know who, for example, Attorney General is um, and major key players in his cabinet. And I think a lot of that is because of the runoffs and you have Republicans that are more focused right now on retaining control because right now it is in their favor because they only need to gain one seat to have majority control. Um, and so Biden has to sort of play a little bit to the Republicans, because he also does not want to antagonize them, antagonize them with his choices, um, and he wants to get his choices confirmed. Um, and so, yeah, that's definitely. Um, I read today that we may not even know on January fifth who wins um, because it is such a tight race, um, and we may not know the fifth, the sixth, the seventh, um, and this is not even including counting mail-in ballots. Um, if it is a tight race, if there needs to be a recount. And then Georgia has to certify the results as well. Um, and so it may be an operation, um, but Congress is able to actually view um, Biden's choices um, and sort of begin the process of confirming them. So Senator Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania actually predicted that um, this whole process wouldn't get started until late January. Um, he said that it wouldn't be practical to do anything before Georgia anyway. Um, Richard Burr, this chairman, um, also expressed doubt that, um, you know, anything could be confirmed um, before this election and even a little bit after the election. Um, I'm interested to get whether you agree with these assessments. Elaine. Yeah, sorry. I just wanted to also kind of, uh, as I was looking through some of the articles, I mean, there's also a pressure of Biden to uh, draw new faces, have a mixture of progress progressives uh, and and just kind of bring some diversity uh, onto the cabinet. So not only ensuring that the choices that he wants uh, will be voted in or confirmed, but also the diversity, uh, because I think the Biden uh, 
uh, Harris campaign kind of uh, used that diversity and inclusion piece uh, throughout their campaign. And so now, as voters have voted for them already, they'll kind of be looking at, okay, we voted for you. You, you know, you've talked a lot about diversity and inclusion. Now let's see it in action. So again, I think that's another another added pressure that can potentially, you know, just halt the the process as well. Um, only because I think that you know voters are expecting that diversity to now take place because it was such a big part of their campaign. Exactly, and in addition to the diversity, um, there was this desire to have competency uh, to address the pandemic uh, because people, you know, they, they, there's fatigue going on. People want to, you know as we talked before we went live, people are tired. You know, they want to spend holidays with their loved ones. Um, they want to know that, you know, at the end of the day, this time next year, they can go back to life as, as it were. Um, but, you know, the Republicans have also pledged to ensure that the Democrats, the Democratic appointees get the same scrutiny uh, that President Trump's appointees received. And so, you know, with that backdrop going on, do you believe that certain appointees are less likely than others to be approved? Um, I know that there are you know, been some notable names so far. Um, most recently, a new secretary of state, I mean, sorry, a new secretary of education, uh, Miguel, uh, Miguel Cardona, uh, to replace uh, the, the incumbent uh, education secretary, um, Betsy DeVos, um, Pete Buttigieg, Pete Buttigieg to, re to replace uh, Elaine Chow for, uh, for transportation. Um, it was announced um, right after the show last week that Michael Regan would be replacing the current EPA uh, administrator. So there's some key names. And I think he's going in the trend of the moderate lane more uh, to improve his chances of getting these uh, folks to get bipartisan support. Um, but are there any names that you think should raise some caution or you think are less likely than others to to get full comp like a bipartisan approval? Um, as of right now, I think uh, the only problem I would see would be Pete uh, Buttigieg. Um, earlier in the campaign, he was brought up as um, um, uh, in regards to gun control and gun control. Uh, any amount of gun control is like um, too much for for certain people, and because of that, he got a real he, he you know his results showed he really did not get um, what he wanted. Um, so that would be my only consideration, just because if he gets in and he's appointed, um, that will look pretty bad for Republicans in general. But other than that, I really don't see a problem. I think um, Neera Tandon, uh, Biden's pick for the, to be the director of the Office of Management and Budget, uh, she's received a lot of scrutiny with Republicans. Um, and she had specifically went to her social media account, I think, and she had said some unfavorable things um, about Republicans in the past. And so... Uh, a lot of senators have come out and said, look, that's causing alarm. Now, of course, that's rich because of how Trump has used Twitter to demonize his political opponents. Uh, but I was interested in getting your thoughts. Do you think that someone like Neera Tandon can still get con confirmed? Um, or do you think that Biden is, because of the election, the election wasn't uh, a white, a, a blue wave like folks had hoped for? Um, but it was a referendum on Trump. Uh, but election, like down ballot, the Republicans did better. Um, you know, state state uh, House races and Senate races um, in the House. Do you think that because the Republicans have voiced such opposition to this particular 
appointee near attendant that she's unlikely to to be confirmed? Or do you think at the end of the day, Biden should hold to his guns and say, look, I'm the new president. We need this cabinet and she's going to be an effective uh, director of OMB. Well, um, I think that uh, kind of going back to what you were initially stating with, um, you know, wondering if there's going to be litigation and wondering what's really going to happen uh, with just the initial process of the confirmation. I think all of that really is going to hinge on Susan, Susan Collins, uh, Lisa Markowski, and um, uh, what is his name? Mitt, Mitt Romney. Um, I think I think those three are really going to be the ones that are going to make the difference because they're they are the most likely to buck the system then and, and they have shown um especially uh romney he's been very vocal um about this whole election fraud thing and all of that um so i i i think that um if we did have a time frame that we would have to wait, um, I wouldn't hinge it necessarily that they would swing. Um, but I think that if anyone is willing to swing, um, it would definitely be the three of them because they're they're very keen on the separation from Trumpism and Republicanism. Because I, I I now see our country as a three party uh, system. I no longer see our country as democratic and Republican. We have Democrats, we have Republicans, and we have Trump Trumpyism. Okay. So I, I I think that because those three hinge on uh you know pillars of the Senate like uh John McCain, for instance, uh people like like that, they're very keen on maintaining that uh core conservatism that a lot of uh Republicans are yearning for and wondering what's happening, uh, you know, when they see people like Lindsey Graham and Mitch McConnell completely uh, you know, leave uh, the party, e essentially. Um, so I, I, I think that the confirmation process, um, however long it takes, because I'm sure, uh, make no mistake, there's going to be lawsuits. We, we're still seeing lawsuits, even though there's been no wins or, indica or any indications that anybody is going to take it seriously. Um, I'm sure there's going to be a litany of, of lawsuits that are going to come in even before the ballots are finished being cast, um, if, uh, you know, history is any indicator of it of repeating it itself. Um, but um, I, I do I do believe that if we have any chance of getting anything confirmed, it would definitely be those those three. And I also just wanted to throw in there that I, I, I definitely agree with you, Mike. It is quite hilarious that Republicans would take issue with um, her commentary on social media when um, Trump has made it his business uh, to uh, conduct foreign policy by Twitter and to uh, utilize Twitter to demonize um, anybody um, who remotely feels the need to disagree uh, with his erratic uh, behavior and nonsensical policies that he puts forward. So we'll just have to see how hypocritical uh, the Republicans choose to uh, remain moving forward. And I'm, I'm really glad you brought that point out because, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine about, you know, us splitting into a three-party system. And of course, you know, this has been raised over different years. People thought we were the Republicans were going to split uh, when in 1976 when Reagan challenged Ford and Reagan I mean, Reagan chose a really hard uh, right running mate, Stryker. Um, and we thought that 
you know, the Republican Party was going to split again in 1980 when the Jimmy Carter campaign thought that Reagan was too conservative to run against uh, Jimmy Carter. And the Carter, the Carter campaign was celebrating in the White House. Um, we thought that the party's going to split in 16 um, when we saw the Access Hollywood tape, when we saw, uh, you know, all of this brandish behavior that was still novelty back then because he was not the president. Um, but but right now, I think it's different because, you know, there's a lot of talk about 24 um, and he's going to hold that over everyone's head for four years. He's going to I think he's going to be uh, a sort uh, he's going he's going to be a pain in Biden's side for four years. And I think that when we get to that time. The, the, the story will be whether, you know, the, those who want to keep the Republican Party as they remember it and those who are on this America first train with Trump, um, being that, you know, anti-immigration, um, focusing on domestic policy, uh, ripping ourselves out of uh, foreign agreements like NATO. And, 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 and you know, th- those people, I think, are so drastically different from the traditional fiscal conservative supply side economics, uh, strong defense uh, Republicans that we knew from the 1980s on. And I'm thinking, you know, we're only 20 years into this new century. I'm wondering if this is the beginning of a new historical three-party system. Um, and it's not hard to think that way. You know, I'm, when we're going forward, there's a lot of young people who voiced um, the need for a multi-party system. And I'm wondering if this is, you know, the time that's going to happen. But, you know, of course, we'll, we won't know until, you know, time proves that to be true. But, um, you know, in, in, in the same vein, um, we're seeing that, you know, Romney, of course, took to meet the press or CNN recently and had said, you know, the party has lost its way since I was the nominee in 2012. Um, remember, that was just eight years ago. And so it's so interesting to see the different dynamics at play. Remember, Utah Republicans, I don't think, based on polling, they're not as pro-Trump as other uh, red states. Uh, and Mitt Romney has a secure seat in the Senate. His seat, his Senate seat is not contingent upon whether or not he aligns himself with Trump 100 percent of the time. You know, he has some way there that other Republican senators don't have. And so I'm glad you brought out Romney. Um, but as it pertains to the covid bill, you know, this was very months in the making uh, during the summer. Uh, you know, Secretary Mnuchin had said, look, we want 1.6 trillion, I mean, $1.3 trillion. Pelosi said, no, we want $2 trillion. And there seemed to be a stalemate for so many months. We went through the whole summer without seeing any COVID relief. Um, The last time we saw a COVID relief bill was in May. Um, Now we finally get some light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, Both sides seem to come to an agreement. Everyone seems to be in the Christmas spirit. And all of a sudden, Trump comes out with a new video and says, I'm not going to sign it. So... He said, I want, I want to, you know, in terms of employment benefits, that should be $2,000. My thing is, and I've heard folks go up on their social media and get on their soapbox and say, look, you know, why can't it be that Trump wins? Y'all are criticizing him and he's fighting for us to get more, more unemployment benefits. And I'm saying, if this was his plan to begin with, why didn't we hear about this before November 3rd? In fact, that would have helped him. You know, it would have really helped his chances against Biden. It was a really close race. Um, he wasn't handling COVID well, but the least he could have done was, you know, say, look, give them more unemployment benefit. That would have really sold him with folks who just want to vote for Trump and want a reason to vote for him. Um, I'm interested to get your thoughts on the dynamics that play with this new uh, debacle in the Senate and, and the, on Capitol Hill uh, with President Trump, who just left from Mar-a-Lago yesterday for the Christmas holiday um, and, and for New Year's. Uh, you know, does this set us back or was this a, a strategic move? 
on his part to um, make a play for 24. I thought he was coming back to say, look, at the end of the day, my last thing in office was my, my, my last action in office was to fight for more unemployment funds for you, the American people. I'm interested to get your thoughts on that. Um, I think it's interesting that um, that Trump did all of this, especially because his party, the Republican Party, didn't even want the they only they they forfeited or they allowed for the six hundred dollars stimulus checks to to go through. They didn't want twelve hundred dollars, and some of them did not even want the initial twelve hundred dollars that we received back in the spring. And so, I, I think it's really interesting. I again, I think it's Trump being Trump and really only caring about him and his own image and his supporters. Um, and he's more focused right now on again um, overturning the election, and so. Well, meanwhile, the Republicans are trying to shift the focus to the Georgia runoff. And so I find it interesting that he decided to drop the ball a uh, day before Christmas. Um, and also the fact that the House today, House Republicans, um, voted against the $2,000 stimulus check. And so as of right now, we're in a state of limbo and um, Americans are not, at least for right, right now, we don't know when, or, when we're getting stimulus checks or unemployment benefits and all the other things that are part of this bill. Um, and so, yeah, we're just in a state of limo and I, I, I don't know, I just find it really interesting that Trump decided to do this the day before Christmas. The, the thing with Trump is that he's a very transactional uh, person. Um, and so, you know, after, after November 7th, I was on a different podcast and someone had asked, you know, do you think that, you know, we'll see some COVID relief? And I said, well, the thing you have to consider is, does he have anything to gain politically um, at this point? Was there anything to gain politically? And I think that's the only that's the only context in which I can view this action to veto uh, the bill. Um, and I think this was a move to this was a stunt um, because if this if this was the plan of the administration, remember the Republicans and his uh, administration said we're going to uh, further the agenda of the president. We're, whatever he says he wants in terms of COVID relief, we're going to fight for. We're going to go and bat for him for that. Um, and at the time, they wanted 1.3 trillion. Now, they want to they want two thousand dollars included in unemployment benefits. Um, this is after the Republican senators took to the Senate floor and said, uh, "We don't need an additional 600 uh, unemployment uh, benefit. We need 300 dollars." Um, some senators, like Rand Paul, said, uh, "The American people don't need another check." Um, like his own family, he said. Um, so you have folks on the record saying that we don't need additional funds. And then the president makes this 180. Um, what are we to make of this, um, Xavier? Well, first of all, we can say that uh, America is just a homeless person in a Gucci belt at this point. Um, I, I said this in the last podcast, like other countries are getting treated so much better. And I think, um, you know, in, in the 20th century, we saw a great migration within the African community, African American community. I would love to see that happen where there's no longer a stipulation on black people getting treated properly or not in the US. There's simply no black people in the US. That would be great uh, in one sense that, you know, now we're not dealing with this, this evil, um, although we do have some serious heritage here. Um, yeah, and the second thing it shows us is how much, uh, who's really on the leash here. Um, uh, and I mean, as you as you know, you've been on Capitol Hill. Um, Capitol Hill is pretty much Vegas in the suit, and it's it's um, everything is transactional. 
everything is you're trying to either appease somebody or you're trying to win somebody over. And when you try so hard to be the B man and then the A man does something to make you look bad, now you have no moves. You know, so it's going to be, I think, um, very interesting come midterms again to see what what um, the Republican Party looks like for um, rural Republicans who are unemployed right now um, or just um, people in general who are unemployed right now who don't have things to give to their kids on Christmas Day um, where but in other countries they're living just fine. I think it's going to be really interesting come 2022. So I see an argument that, you know, it's actually the mo the motive is to have Biden uh, sign this huge, uh, you know, unemployment check for these for the American people so that you can go back and call them tax and stem, tax and spend Democrats in 2022 and 24. I, I'm wondering if that's a little too sophisticated for Trump. Um, but I know that somebody did get to him. Um, you know, I've been reading uh, this book, actually, Rage by Bob Woodward. And it just goes into uh, the first administration uh, and, and the sp specific decisions that were made and the motivations behind them and who were the key players in the room at the time. Um, and, you know, I'm wondering if that's something I would see in maybe a, a part three to this book. Um, I want to get your thoughts on that because, you know, being that it's so close to the 20th um, and Trump all of a sudden is changing his tune. Uh, I'm wondering what we're to make of this. Was this a move to just uh, sow chaos on his way out the door for the sake of sowing, sowing chaos? Or was this more of a strategic effort uh, to undercut the incoming administration who will have to outdo or, I get meet up the standard that Trump has just laid out with this $2,000 unemployment benefit promise? Um, I think it's definitely um, a means for him to get back at people. Um, I, I really don't think there's actually any, any strategic plan. I mean, if, if you take a look at at when he first ran, uh, he, there was no policy. There, there, there was no outline of what he was actually going to do. All of his policy, all of his bills, all of his laws, everything that he's tried to enact has been flying at the seat of his pants. Just, I woke up this morning, this sounds good, let's push this. Um, I think he is incredibly angry and upset and petty and bitter <laughs> that he has not won the election. And the fact that Mitch McConnell, uh, you know, and other Republicans have finally acknowledged that Biden did in fact uh, win and he is the president-elect, I, I think that he literally wants to burn it down. And I think the only way that he can think of, of doing so, because if, if you understand uh, a bit of psychology with Trump, um, Trump was a registered Democrat up until he decided to run. Um, Trump is not a true Republican. He is not a true conservative. He doesn't have any true uh, Republican or conservative ideas or ideologies or allegiances or alliances, right? He's simply looking out for self. And I, I think I think the the only uh, reasoning other than him wanting to just sow seeds of dissension and chaos and really uh, stick it to Mitch McConnell, um, because he looks at people in a singular 
situation. He, he doesn't look at it um, as a whole for the Republican Party. Um, I, I think also because of the pardons that he's been putting forth um, and the controversial nature of those said pardons uh, moving forward and uh, putting forth this situation that would have otherwise been a calming situation. Now it has, uh, there's, uh, you know, sparks of chaos and people aren't necessarily talking so much about the pardons. Um, you know, they're, they're looking more into uh, the fact that now uh, the president wants to do this to $2,000 and isn't this great. Um, so I, you know, I, I, I don't necessarily think there was a, a diversionary uh, tactic. I, I just, I just uh, unfortunately don't think that uh, the current president is um, that articulate. So, in addition to this, this is at the backdrop of 26 pardons being issued uh, by Trump, and, and it's so close to Christmas. Everyone's watching Christmas movies, and, and they're so distracted doing all of these, you know, holiday light shows and, and watching all of these things. Um, and it kind of happens under the cover of night where you have now Roger Stone getting a pardon. Uh, his former campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, gets a pardon. Jared Kushner's father, who has you know, been guilty of so many different crimes, Charles uh, Kushner, he's getting a pardon. Um, so uh, it's a very Merry Christmas for them. Um, but I'm wondering if you know that coupled with the fact that yesterday was Bill Barr's last day as attorney general, Jeff Rosen will replace him. Uh, and Jeff Rosen is actually the, the man who Trump turned to uh, when uh, John Bolton wrote his unfavorable book, uh, John Bolton, who was the former national security advisor to the president, um, and said, I want you to go after him. Um, being that Jeff Rosen seems to be someone who fits the Roy Cohn, the Roy Cohn mold uh, that Trump had wanted to begin with, going back to the beginning of his presidency, should we uh, be anxious in terms of what to expect from the Justice Department in these waning days uh, of the Trump presidency, um, are we going to look at, you know, after the fifth of January, uh, a move by the Justice Department to undermine uh, the the results if they go the direction the Democrats want them to go? Uh, I want you. I wanted to get you, you know, your thoughts on that, and, and that coupled with the fact that uh, we also have, you know, no Attorney General named yet for the Biden administration. This time, uh, during the Obama administration, the Attorney General was announced to be Eric Holder. Uh, in 2008. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of, you know, I get a lot of uh, anticipation as to who this person who's going to fit this, uh, this role will be. Dabney. Um, so I guess to answer your question, um, I definitely, I think that is cause for concern um, because again of what Tasha said about who we know Trump to be um, and for the next attorney general that's taking over for Barr, um, if he fits the bill of what Trump has always wanted, um, he will also try to create chaos before the inauguration um, and before Biden can get in. Um, we see this, Trump is trying to, he's been pushing for Republicans to create a special counsel into the, the to overturn the election. Um, so I could see that potentially being um, an issue um, that's next. The only saving grace I would say is the fact that there isn't that much time. Um, we are less than a month away from Biden being our next president. Um, and so, and again, the Republican party is 
slowly trying to turn away from this election um, because they're more focused on gaining control. Because as you said, they are accepting that Joe Biden is the president elect. And so they're trying to gain control um, so that they could basically block Joe Biden and his policies um, in the future. So again, I think this is another way to distract us and um, to turn our heads, all of these pardons, um, the COVID bill, all of it is to distract um, as Trump does. And so um, there is cause for concern, but my hope is because of the lack of time that Trump has, um, that it it will all basically be all talk essentially and nothing um, strong could uh, come to fruition. Yeah, I uh, just wanted to add that I, uh, as I'm listening to, of course, details that you all are kind of fleshing out, I think it's also, you know, a bit of a, you know, um, while you cries wolf and, and you know, throw the rock, hide the hand type situation. I really do think it's important uh, to note that going back to your previous question, I think it's a bit of both. I think it's a bit of both strategic, uh, but then also kind of like saving face uh, as you know he is trying to exit or uh, America's trying to let him know that it's time to go. Um, so I think you know it's just interesting to to see this because when I saw it on the news, um, of course, you know, just like looking at my newsfeed, I was very shocked that Trump actually made this announcement that he wants to raise. Uh, the actual amount of relief. Um, and I do think that this is something, I say this, I say this of course tongue in cheek, but basically when when something that Trump says that sounds very good to the public eye, I always look for, okay, what is the, what is the reason? What is the background? Is there a catch to this? Because a lot of times something is said, but there's a lot of red tape that goes around it, or it actually is something that isn't as true as the public thinks. So it's just something to definitely watch in general um, because I'm just putting myself in his shoes. If I was leaving an office and knowing that this one uh, topic of COVID, I might not have held uh, as well as I did according to the public eye. I definitely want to make sure that the public is in my favor regardless of whatever happens. Um, so yeah, I just think it's something to to watch. Just watch the upcoming moves because even though, some and someone said it as well, Yes, Biden is going to uh, come and he's going to be our president, but there still is. It's almost like last minute, kind of like last cry uh, that I think that's going on right now in, in the current. current. And that's a good point. Um, additionally, you know, when we're looking at Manafort and 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 uh, sorry, Manafort and um, the, the other Trump uh, advisor who was close with the, with the president. Uh, these two gentlemen were indicted uh, during the Mueller investigation. Um, the book that I was just alluding to earlier um, had conveyed what was going on behind the scenes in terms of choosing a special counsel. Uh, you know, this was actually after um, Jim Comey was fired from the FBI. Um, and he was fired actually while he was giving a speech to, uh, at the, the event was aimed at diversifying the, uh, the FBI. And so he's giving the speech and then he turns around and sees the headline and he thought it was a joke at first. He thought it was a really well designed joke. Um, and then it turned out to be true. Uh, Rod Rosenstein actually had a meeting with Trump in which he said, well, Jim Comey's uh, actions with the uh, email, the Hillary Clinton email investigation, um, his action of closing the investigation only to reopen it 
during the same election process um, only, and then calling it irresponsible and reckless, that was enough to fire him. Uh, so the White House puts the whole blame on Rosenstein that Rosenstein wanted Jim Comey fired. And I'm looking at that in the context of what's going on now. Um, and I'm knowing that whoever's going to come and replace Bill Barr uh, is going to be the name that they most likely point to if there's future litigation uh, pertaining to the Senate runoffs, pertaining to any kind of last ditch effort to undermine the November 7th election results. Um, additionally, Charles Kushner, Jared Kushner's father, is ironic. The U.S. attorney who prosecuted him was Chris Christie. Um, and he was prosecuted for tax evasion. He was prosecuted on 16 counts of tax evasion and for lying to the Federal Election Commission. Um, so, the, you know, the, the the irony is so great here because now you have Chris Christie taking to cable news shows and saying the gig is up. You know, the Trump campaign needs to call it quits. They need to stop. They're embarrassing themselves. Um, and it's time to end the charade. Um, and, you know, I saw Chris Christie as someone who ran in the primary and hitched his wagon to Trump quick. Uh, as an opportunist. Uh, I thought that he was going to get a post in the administration, a, a, maybe a department secretary title. Um, but all of this is very interesting because like you had said, Elena, these are our last uh, moves um, that will have a lasting consequence uh, for the next administration and beyond. Uh, Mike Pompeo today announced that uh, the United States will now establish a U.S. consulate in Western Sahara, um, and they're going to have a virtual um, diplomatic presence um, and it's going to begin, as he called, effective immediately. Uh, he announced that today, uh, Christmas Eve. And, you know, this announcement comes after President Trump announced earlier this month that the U.S. would recognize Morocco's long-held claims over the former Spanish territory as part of a normalization of relations between Morocco and Israel. Um, all of these uh, relations, not only in domestic policy, but foreign policy, um, have huge uh, consequences. And I'm wondering if someone got to him and said, you know, we're, it's time to play offense a little bit. Uh, we've been playing defense with the election process too long. It's time to make some last moves, uh, in, especially if you plan to make 2024 uh, a reality for you. Um, do you all think the same way? Like, are, are these all part of a coordinated strategy uh, of fighting back? Um, I'll just go ahead and say, I think with anything, there is a strategy. Uh, Regardless if it's well thought out, well planned, I just think there's always a strategy because there's always something that you're looking for in return. Um, so, you know, I, and one thing that I'm I'm actually having my ears on uh, about at the moment is the foreign policy, um, because as you know, uh, COP26 will be held uh, here by the UK, and so that's a big thing that we're getting ready for at the moment. And of course, we know that the U.S. has been pulled out of the, the agreement and things like that as far as climate change. And now with Biden coming in office, there is kind of a buzz about the U.S. coming back. Um, and while that's interesting to say, it's just something that as I see the different moves for foreign policy, I'm just kind of listening out to kind of see what changes will actually be made uh, and what the U.S.'s opportunity now is now this upcoming COP it's gonna happen, what is the US actually saying with Biden being the president? Um, but yeah, like I said, everything is a strategic move and I think it's just something to just watch uh, and just be mindful of and keep track of the decisions that were made before and then this, the decisions that are made now in like the last few moments. And I think one of the things I really appreciate about this time period is that you have the, the Democrats 
it's not like they can just sit back and just watch this. They don't have to just do that. Like they can call out the Republicans bluff where they can. Uh, like we were talking about the bill earlier and pertains to Trump's call for $2,000 unemployment benefit. And he, you know, it was a video that contained a lot in terms of him also saying that the election was rigged again. But Pelosi goes back on, onto her Twitter and says, well, let's do it. The House is going to pass a $2,000 unemployment bill. I mean, these are the ways that we can call, the Democrats can call out the Republicans bluff um, and actually force them to uh, be looked at by the American people as, you know, looking at the motives and looking at the actions as they are. Uh, without the fanfare, without the uh, political, quick, tangible uh, benefits uh, that they're expecting to receive from them, but you know this this whole key issue between Israel and Morocco is key because uh, Western Sahara was a, a Spanish colony until the mid 1970s, when Morocco invaded and established de facto control over the, most of the area, lasting until today. Um, so this is a move that has long lasting consequences, and especially when you also consider the fact that they moved the consul, the, the U.S. embassy from Tel Aviv uh, to Jerusalem. Uh, this was a promise made by uh, previous administrations. Trump prides himself in being the, the one who got it done. Uh, I'm wondering if foreign policy uh, for the incoming administration is made even more difficult, not only because foreign alliance is being a little deteriorated and uh, deals like the Iran nuclear deal, the Paris Climate Accord uh, being, you know, the U.S. removing itself from those from those significant deals. I'm wondering if, you know, the incoming administration will have even more of a hard job to do because of the fact that a lot of these moves, like you had said, Elena, have inf like influential uh, consequences. Um, you know, changing the embassy is not just a matter of changing, you know, where diplomats would go to have meetings uh, and where American citizens in foreign countries would go if they have any problems. You're talking about uh, international relations being altered um, for the better or, or for the worse. And um, in this case, because um, before this, this the, the, the Israel-Morocco deal, the U.S. policy toward the territory was more in terms of a European Union, uh, United Nations direction. Uh, I'm wondering if this will have significant effects in, as it pertains to U.S. relations with the United Kingdom and the EU. Um, you know, this is it's really interesting to look into, but I, I want to open the floor uh, for any others before we conclude for the evening. Um, I would like to add to, um, I definitely agree that Biden has a lot to repair the damage um, that Trump did in regards to foreign relation and that he just did right now by pardoning the four men um, involved with the black water situation in Iraq. Um, that, was definitely, that left long-term implications for U.S.-Iraqi relations, our relations with the Middle East in general and internationally as well. Because right now, um, the world is looking at us like the U.S. cannot keep their promises. The U.S. is unreliable. And so Biden is gonna have to come in and repair that, um, especially since now um, these men have been pardoned. How do we, um, especially now with military troops also still in Iraq, um, more focused on ISIS. Um, how do we keep those relations as tense as they already were before um, at a stable level so that one, things don't um, explode or things don't um, get worse, but also for the protection of our troops that are there as well, who had no part in this situation, who had no part in what happened um, in 2007. And so, 
um, yeah, I think he, it will be interesting to see what he does. Um, but I think that that's something that is high on his list. Yeah, I just wanted um, to add that um, Biden is definitely going to have to go on an apology tour, uh, much like Obama did um, after uh, George Bush uh, left office. Um, so I think that in a way it is beneficial to us in the States to have uh, Biden there uh for a number of reasons. Um, he watched the apology tour. He was a part of the planning that took into, um, you know, going to various leaders and various countries and attempting to repair um, our, our relationships. Um, he's also great um, in a sense because he was the architect of healing us from the financial deficit that we were in when he and Obama took uh, office um, initially. Um, so I, I, think, I think that um, no one is more equipped um, in this situation to be able to handle it. Um, I can definitely say that um, speaking as a military wife, um, there is a lot of concern um, about our troops. Um, my husband at the time that the uh, bounties were put was in Afghanistan. Um, so finding that out once he had come home, um, you know, finding out why there were so much, so much activity, um, it then made a lot of sense um, as to why it became a lot hotter for for the troops. So I, I do think that that's something that we have to definitely consider: um, is how are we going to make things safe? Um, and I, I think that having Biden in there because his his son did serve, and he understands. Uh, military from a different perspective, not just appreciating it, but understanding it because they are a military family and they understand what deployments are about. And he really gets what it means when you call those troops out. Um, so I, I think I think that yes, an apology tour is gonna have to happen. Um, I think, uh, last point I'm gonna make, I, I, think, I think that um, every country runs into a situation that we're in right now where you have a teetering point. Uh, you know, are you going to go right? Or are you going to go left? Um, you only get that one time to mess up, right? So I, I think that coming and saying, you know, we lost our way, taking a, accountability and responsibility for what has happened um, in trying to resubmit um, those longstanding uh, re relationships, re-entering um, things like the World Health Organization that we helped found, re-entering the Paris Climate Accord. I mean, just, you know, just basically coming back to business as usual um, will go a long way for our allies in resubmitting uh, those, those ties. Well, yeah, I do. I definitely want to also add the point of um, Brexit. Uh, so, how can I put this? So with Trump, actually, Trump was very much in support as when I was working at the British Embassy, this was a kind of like the key thing um, that was understood, that there was support from the U.S. as far as U.K. leaving the EU. Uh, and now with Biden uh, being the new elect, there is a question of whether the trade deals and the ideas that they had would still go on, um, trying to see what Biden's real position is. Um, on the UK leaving uh, the EU. And there's some articles that I've read that Biden doesn't seem 
too supportive uh, with this decision. Uh, now, today, we've just struck a deal, and the, the details of the deal will be coming very soon, uh, but there was a deal struck, uh, and the UK is leaving the EU, so now it's a question. I think the UK is kind of looking and seeing, okay, well, now we're leaving. Do we still have the US's support uh, with Biden being the new president? So I think that's something that, of course, uh, I'm kind of trying to keep uh, as far as looking and seeing what his actual stance will be. Um, I know with the the Paris Agreement, I mean, he's definitely all for it. Um, Trump pulling us out. So it's kind of it's almost like uh, they're swapping positions. So Trump was definitely not necessarily for uh, the Paris Agreement, pulled America out of it, not necessarily uh, even with the UN's um, uh, Human Rights uh, Council pulling the US out of it. However, Biden is for those things, um, understanding that the US does play a role uh, in global changes. However, with the Brexit deal, Trump was definitely for it, uh, definitely showed much support. And now Biden, there's question around if he actually is in support of it. So it's, again, it's just something that we're all kind of watching and waiting to see what will happen in the upcoming months. That's a good point. And, and you know, when we're looking at, uh, you know, situations around the world globally that pertain to our allies, uh, like the situation that's going on in the United Kingdom, uh, where the deal they had just reached in terms of you know, the United Kingdom agreeing to leave uh, the European Union. You know, it's important, you know, when we're looking at who's going to run the State Department, um, Anthony Blinken um, is actually a multilateralist. Uh, he's someone who prides himself in, in adhering or believing in the strength of global ties. Um, you know, he said that, you know, he has one reoccurring mantra, and that is the U.S. should work with its allies and within international treaties and organizations. Um, so there's a glimmer of hope. You know that we can have a policy that's geared towards uh, maintaining and, and or garnering the support from a coalition of allies, um, ensuring that uh, those uh, those those the relationships are repaired, uh, or at least making the necessary steps towards uh, the process of repairing them. Uh, but what's also significant is that the gentleman who has been chosen by Biden to head the Defense Department is a four-star general. He's the first African American, also. And, you know, this has raised some controversy among ac academics or among uh, politicians. Uh, Seth Moulton, who also ran for president, uh, but unsuccessfully the Democratic, for the Democratic nomination uh, in 2020, had said civilian control of the military is fundamental to our democracy. So I don't think it's the time to make an exception. He has agreed to not vote for a waiver uh, for uh, Biden's uh, new choice uh, for defense. Um, and, of course, that pick is um, General Lloyd Austin. Um, Remember, four years ago, um, James Mattis, who Trump loved to call James Mad Dog Mattis, received a waiver. Um, and so now here comes in the consecutive administration, another general that's received a waiver. Before Mattis and, and, and Austin, you have to go back to uh, Marshall uh, in 1950 to see when the last time a defense secretary had to receive the waiver was. And so there's this whole you know, argument as to whether or not we're setting the precedent for a new normal. Uh, remember, civilian control was the ideal for uh, the Defense Department, because they didn't want to have the military running everything uh, in terms of defense. But these are some of the factors that are coming into play as we're talking about international relations. Um, but what's also significant in recent days is that Kamala, Kamala Harris's uh, a, uh, replacement has been chosen, uh, and the replacement is Alex Padilla. Um, this means that there will be no African-American woman in the Senate, um, but this also means that we'll have the first Latino uh, gentlemen to represent California. 
uh, as in the Senate. So I was actually thinking that it was going to be Eric Garcetti. Uh, Eric Garcetti, to me, looked like he had uh, national ambitions, uh, specifically presidential ambitions. I think he didn't run because Kamala Harris threw her hat into the ring, and you know, they, you know, whatever relationship uh, that was built, uh, he didn't want to stain in any way. I think, and you know, being that it was a COVID nineteen election, uh, I think that him staying in the position of mayor served of Los Angeles served uh, him well for his future resume. But I want to get your thoughts on this new pick by Gavin Newsom, the governor of Alex Padilla, before we close out. Um, you know, this gentleman, of course, um, is an advocate for Governor Gavin Newsom. Uh, he's someone who's been on his side, um, you know, in the campaign trail and, and in the office of the governorship. So I was wondering if, I, if you have any thoughts on this before we close out. Well, I'll say in, uh, in regards to the Senate, the Senate is really where um, history has been made recently. Um, like with Warnock and whatnot, he can be another black person that has gotten into the Senate and the Senate has, very, has been very much um, the majority. Um, the House is more representation. So I think it's really good to have um, in the Latinx community now inside of the Senate um, having additional change. I think it's going to be huge for for California being um, a majority minority now, where um, most of the people in California are not the majority. Most people are Latinx, um, African-American and whatnot. So I think it's, it's, um, it's going to be good in regards to representation, not just for um, ballots, but also for the coming generation of Latinx people saying, yes, I can do this too. Yes, I'm a young black woman. Yes, I can be the VP and eventually the president. Um, all these things um, is, is looking brighter in regards to what can happen versus what has been happening. Um, I think it's an awesome idea um, to have someone who is of the Brown community representing Latinx people. Um, I don't think that we can ever go wrong uh, with too much representation um, because as Xavier just stated, it gives um, those coming after them hope that they can, ex they can that there's no glass ceiling for, for them simply because of where they come from or uh, what their race is or what their ethnic group is or whatever, their religion, anything that they can actually ascend to um, any uh, place, even if that is the presidency or to be a senator. And as a native Californian, I think that it's um, awesome because I, I think that uh, far too often California is um, perceived as just like Laguna Beach and Newport Beach and, you know, those places are there. Um, but there's also a lot of other places of uh, people who look like me or, or, you know, who are of Asian descent or, or, you know, all different types of the rainbow and the eth ethnic uh, representation. Uh, so I think that, you know, like, like I stated, you, you, you can't have too many, uh, people coming in that are breaking uh, boundaries and opening doors uh, for all of us to walk through. And I definitely think that uh, aligns just with the campaign of Biden and Harris. I mean, the entire campaign was about, uh, you know, representation, diversity, inclusion, you know, allowing people to see that they can be who they see on TV. So I just think it kind of 
flows really well um, for to her, for her represent or her um, the person who's now taking on her position to be a part of that diversity and inclusion uh, campaign, as I call it. I would agree, and also this this um, new appointee um, kind of bears us to ask the question: Where is America going in regards to representation? Um, is is the Trumpism that has been played for four years, is that going to still be in effect um, for the additional four years? Are we going to have to mend ourselves out of this? You know, what is America going to decide in regards to politics and policy? Um, does America still want the Trumpism and the Twitter and, you know, all the things that no one else can get away with? Is that going to be the norm or are we going to go back to the, to the way it used to be? where senators and congresswomen and women were decent people who did decent things that represented decent people? Um, or is there gonna be a new way that we see um, politics and policy um, that we haven't even thought of? So these, these are questions that are, are gonna be answered as more diversity is included, which is gonna be a great thing to see within the Biden campaign. And sorry. Oh, sorry. Just want to add really quick, Xavier. Um, you actually brought up a point that I've been thinking about as well. Because with the U.S., the other the other fear, I guess, that I have also is using diversity inclusion as like a coin or a hook, uh, and not actually following through. Um, so you can use it all you want to gain supporters. Um, and of course, during the other interesting thing that I kind of want to add as well is the diversity inclusion piece being so heavily. Um, kind of like pursued, especially during the time of COVID, lockdown, George Floyd, so forth and so on. And so that was a really great hook because now the entire world is kind of facing and seeing what's actually going on for years. Um, and so now it's kind of looking at that and saying, okay, not using that as a hook, but using that as something that where they can actually deliver. And I think that's a question that's now going on in my head, you know, in the upcoming years, will they actually deliver on what they've said that they they're going to do? Um, so, well, I guess we'll wait. And, and the thing, you know, folks have to remember when it pertains to these kinds of uh, appointments, uh, where there's a lot of pressure uh, to choose someone of color, choose someone of a specific demographic for diversity's sake. Uh, you're never going to please everyone 100. Um, percent And so, even though African Americans are giving Gavin Newsom a lot of heat. Um, you know, you didn't replace uh, Kamala Harris with another black woman in the Senate. And, you know, your recent move to appoint a black woman to the state uh, or, or the position of secretary of the state of California is not enough compensation. Um, you know, think about the fact that when Kamala Harris was chosen as the vice presidential nominee for Joe Biden, there was some folks on the Latino side that said, you know, you're not respecting the Latino com community. Uh, this is a community where you're struggling with in terms of polls. Trump has actually made inroads with this community uh, in states like Florida and, and Arizona. And you you have to show that you're actually working for this constituency. Um, so, you know, either way, you're going to have folks criticizing. Um, but, you know, I think this pick is significant because about 40 percent of the Latino population of 40 million in, Cal in California have praised uh, the, the appointment. And remember, when we're looking at a national ground game, uh, you know, you have to consider the fact that uh, when we're making these moves, we, we have to consider the fact that the Democratic Party not only has to uh, address the, the the lack of representation on the African-American side, but also the Latino side. Uh, and so far, uh, there's been a criticism that the, the Biden administration has not appointed enough Latinos into posts 
Um, we haven't seen much representation, and you know, they sh there. There's a lot of criticism, regardless of which road or which path you pursue. Um, but I want to just thank each of you for what you brought to the political mic. I want to end off actually on a more positive note. Uh, I had went ahead and wrote something of the "Twas the Night Before Christmas." Um, so if you'll bear with me real quick before you leave, uh, "Twas the Night Before Christmas." Uh, and in the White House, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. Courts held there was no voter fraud while Melania was packing for Trump Tower, while Trump held on to delusion, uh, on a delusion, even though key Republicans said there would be a transfer of power. Millions of Americans waited patiently for some COVID-19 relief, but Trump vetoed the bill to show he was still relevant. He was still the commander in chief. Roger Stone, Manafort, and Charles Kushner were all sleeping, all tucked in, all tucked in their beds. While visions of Trump's newly issued 26 pardons danced in their heads, Trump called for $2,000 stimulus, $2, stimulus checks, saying 600 was enough. Pelosi said the House is ready to pass it, calling him out on his bluff. Biden kept pushing through more cabinet appointees. And finally, we'll have some adults in office to deal with COVID-19. Ben Sass, Rubio, and Josh Hawley all worried what their political futures had in store, while Trump kept teasing to his advisors, aides, and the press that he'll be back in 2024. Putin, knowing his buddy's time in the Oval Office was ending soon, authorized a hacking into organizations like FireEye and three federal departments, Commerce, Energy, and Treasury, too. But none of this faced Trump, who continued to act like Scrooge. How can this be that he was a loser? He had boat rallies, and his rallies were huge. All of a sudden, in Georgia, there arose such a clatter. Stacey Abrams jumped up to see what was the matter. When the GOP argued, the election was rigged, and the runoffs were neck and neck. Loeffler kept calling Warnock a crazy radical. Purdue slipped debate, skipped debating Ossoff, and he called in sick. But finally, Trump's promise to drain the swamp was kept. As Bars, Meadow, uh, Ivanka, Don Jr., Eric Conway packed their bags, and so many, so many others who are inept. Dr. Fauci was here to stay, and the White House would now follow CDC protocol. And President-elect Biden wished Merry Christmas to all, and to Trump, a good night. And I just want to thank you all for tuning in to the Political Mic, episode 23. Uh, Merry Christmas to each of you uh, and Merry Christmas to those who are viewing. Um, so much is going on. I want to encourage those who uh, are actually residents and el eligible to vote in the state of Georgia to do so. Uh, remember, January 5th is coming close um, and now is not the time to get ease, uh, get, fall into a state of ease and complacency. Now more than ever, we need you to exercise your right to vote. So much is at stake. Uh, this election is not over. Uh, I want to thank each of you once more. Thank you and good night.